Hey, you're on the Unhindered Podcast with Jamin, and I have something to say. Because if I didn't have something to say, then I wouldn't be saying anything. That's the rules of this game. And I I hope you like those rules, because that the intention of those rules is that it is aimed to give you confidence that when you click on this podcast, that you won't regret it, that you'll find something of value, something that has been thought through, something that does not add to the noise, something that lingers with you, that adds value to your world and helps you get more of what you want. So here we go again for another round. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I have finished updating the new coaching platform. If you were listening last week, you would have heard me say that the platform I had been using had been run by a single woman smoking cigarettes in a lounge room, or so I believe, and it had all fallen apart. And so all my years of coaching content and conversations had vanished and had to rebuild that. It was very stressful, but I've done it. It's out there, and I think it's better than the one before. So look at that. Blessings in disguise. As I'm recording this episode, there's still a little bit of smoke in the air from a bushfire burning on the edge of town. And uh, I think there's been maybe four or five small bushfires over the last month that have been noticeable enough because we've seen and smelt smoke, but nothing like the catastrophic fires from a few years back. And I'm putting that down to the updated new fire warning sign system that the RFS has implemented around the place where They've gone from uh, eight categories of warning down to four. So before it was low to moderate, high, very high, severe, extreme, and catastrophic. One, two, three, four, five, six, six. I said eight, six. Now it's down to four. Moderate, high, extreme, catastrophic. So uh, that's a $50 million upgrade. Now, if you remember all that money that Celeste Barber raised after the fires in 2019, well, that's what you get. Some consultant is sitting pretty right now. And look, it's worked. It's obviously working because it's simplified the system. So now people aren't confused. And because people aren't confused, therefore fires are being extinguished more easily. So it's great. Great improvement. Money well spent. I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, at the moment. It's been on my shelf for some time. I have read a little bit of Gladwell over the years, and he's celebrated as quite an outstanding author. He's very, he's very prolific. I've never really got into his books, to be honest, and I, I always feel bad about that. I'm sorry, Malcolm, if you're listening. And Blink, it was time. Blink was blinking at me on the shelf, and so I've got this special chair that I, I love to do my reading in. And I've got, to, I've got to have a, well, lately I've been having an affogato when I read there. So for those unschooled around the art of affogatos, that's a, a shot of coffee over ice cream. And if you do it properly, it's also a shot of frangelica, which is a hazelnut liqueur. Particularly good. You've got this, this lovely mix of sweet and bitter and hot and cold all together. And it's, there's a party in your mouth. And so an affogato in my comfy chair, and my comfy chair rocks, which is really important. I used to get in trouble for rocking at school all the time, and I thought I was a terrible person. That's what I was led to believe, but it turns out that my legs are a lot longer than my torso proportionately, 
And so when I sit normally in a chair, my knees are higher than my hips, which is not very comfortable. So if I can rock, then I get those knees down and those hips up, feels so much better. And so uh, when we were picking furniture for the house, I got to choose a special chair and I made sure it rocked. So I've got this lovely Lazy Boy recliner that rocks in the corner with a lamp and a plant and a desk to sit an affogato and a book on. And that's where I do my reading. So reading Blink, Malcolm Gladwell, if you've read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But early on, he talks about uh, this guy whose name escapes me. But basically, this guy devoted his life to being able to being able to understand whether couples who are married were going to survive and he he refined his skills so well that he could have them sit down in front of a camera and just have an ordinary conversation about almost any topic for 5 or 10 minutes and he would record that and just by watching that video he could tell within 1% accuracy so 99% correct he could tell whether they that marriage was going to work and the point of why Gladwell tells that story, it's all building a case around what we know instinctively and the data that we have available to us that we can instinctively read and assess and understand. So I get that, but I found that story really strange. The lengths this man had gone to and trained countless others to be able to assess accurately whether a marriage was going to last. That to me, that's not rocket science. Like, yeah, most marriages are shit. <laughs> most people are not actually happy, happily married. Have a look around at people who are married and, and tell me where the happy couples are, like really happy couples. Uh, the vast majority of couples married are in an arrangement. They do not have a clean space. There is not intimacy. The space has somehow become poisoned or polluted. Polluted is probably a better word. Poisoned is a bit more dramatic, but but polluted. There are things that they can't talk about. There are issues that are unresolved, and the space is not clean. So that's no great discovery to say that most marriages aren't going to work out. And even the ones where they do work out, i.e. they don't get divorced, are they happy? Are they in love? Is the space clean? No. So I would have thought, it would have been better for him to spend all that energy and research uh, equipping couples with the skills to actually survive and improve their marriage. That, to me, would be far more better use of your intelligence. I, uh, I'm also reading, listening to some Jordan Peterson at the moment. I find his books, they, they are so dense. He's such an intelligent man. I, I'm... I'm convinced he's the smartest man in the world right now and for that reason one of the most important voices. I'm unashamedly a, a Peterson fan. Uh, his his second book or his most recent book, 12 More Rules, which builds on his 12 rules for life. Um, rule number 10 is plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. So I've I uh, because it's such a dense book, I kind of fade in and out of it i listen listen to it and then process some stuff and then that's enough to meditate on for a while and then i'll come back to it and so uh another one of my favorite rituals at the moment is uh, earthing has been really uh it's been a lovely addition to my set of rituals Sadhguru introduced me to this idea that uh, every day if you can let the soles of your feet and the palms of your hand touch the bare earth 
Um, there's something something really reverent about acknowledging source and paying homage to uh, where all life comes from and being connected to uh, the, the life around me. And so the ritual of bare feet on grass is lovely. And now it's, uh, we've been very lucky in Goulburn and, and the eastern side of Australia for the last three years with three seasons of La Nina, so excessive amounts of water, which has meant grass has been green, unseasonally green. Normally, around this time of year, grass is brown and brittle, which now it is because La Nina's gone and we're back to more, more normal rain patterns. And so, uh, yeah, my place, there's no green grass at the moment, but thankfully in the middle of town, there's a, a lovely sporting field with very manicured grass and someone puts a lot of energy into keeping that grass mint. So it's well watered and well cut. And so I love to go there, shoes off, and just wander around this sport field with a coffee and a, a podcast or a book in my ears, lay on the grass. I was laying on the grass there yesterday and uh, some kangaroos came down out of the scrub about 5 p.m., I, I imagine that was their ritual. They came down to get their shoes off and walk in the nice green grass too. And they stopped and just looked at me laying there and, and just had a conversation amongst themselves trying to work out what was going on and whether I was safe or dangerous and should they proceed or not. But I held my space and they bounced off and I got to remain as king of the field. So listening to his book yesterday and particularly this rule, rule 10, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. So Peterson says, all right, let's think about this logistically. You're married to one person. You picked one person and you're married to them and hopefully you're going to stay married to them for the rest of your life. So let's just think about the statistics of what you've done. Um, breaking through the romantic notion that you found your one true love. Have you found your one true love? Like statistically, what, what are the chances that you've found your one true love? If you were to consider compatibility, you know the the amount of people your age uh, who you could theoretically be happily married to around the world. Peterson pulls out a number and says, you know, let's say let's say there was a hundred thousand people around the world who, given the right set of circumstances and interactions, you you could actually forge a, a happy marriage with. Uh, but. It's not like those 100,000 people that are ideally suited to you are all lined up and then you get to choose one of those 100,000 people. You get to pick the best of the 100,000. That's not how it actually plays out because those 100,000 are scattered across 8 billion people. <laughs> and so the likelihood that you find any of the 100,000, let alone the one most suited to you, uh, the chances of that are, are almost zero. Instead, you pick someone and for whatever reason you pick them. Um, maybe you like their hair, maybe they smell good, maybe you grew up in the same town and there's no better options. Um, maybe your parents suggested you should go on a date and the date went well enough that it wasn't a disaster and now 30 years later you're still together and you've got a couple of kids and a house. So Peterson says, righto, what if then you, you don't find the one, what if it's more accurate to think about this as it's your job to to make the one. Now, that subtle reframe, I, I think, is is quite staggering and quite powerful. I, I love the power of language. I love what happens when you think clearly. I love thought experiments. And, and reframes are a, are a very powerful way of altering our experience of life. And 
the beauty is that every single thing can be reframed because everything is framed in the first place. So the frame is the perspective you bring to your experience. It's the filter you put on. It's the lens you look through. And so it colors how you experience something. So if the lens you're looking at is that there is one true love and you've found your one true love, then you're expecting a perfect experience. And and it's a romantic notion and a fairy tale hope and dream, which in the real world doesn't give you much clue as to what to do with the difficulties and the dilemmas and the conflict and the polluted space. So this frame says, what if you swap that frame out to something a bit more pragmatic and said, yeah, you picked someone and it's your job to make it work. So that got me thinking and it's it's not dissimilar to how I have thought about my own life and my own marriage and how I think about coaching others who are in difficulty in their marriages. So imagine if on your wedding day, all the lovely vows that you made to each other were replaced with, with one question, one key question. Uh, would you like to be the one who learns how to love me? And if they say yes, then back to you, well, would you like to be the one who learns how to love me? That changes the game quite considerably. Now, clearly, you're not going to say that on your on your wedding day because you're still starry-eyed and um, in a romantic notion of what could be, and you're not ready for pragmatism when you're in love and you've got the world at your feet. I, I would say typically uh, not dissimilar to the catastrophic challenges in your relationship with yourself. I think catastrophic challenges in your relationship with your spouse happen midlife as well. I think you know you get you get married young, you have some kids, the challenges of working out finances and family and career, and you don't have a lot of time to actually assess how things are really working. It's it's when you pop up for air somewhere around forty that you're like, holy smokes, how did I get here? Who is this person that I'm even married to? I don't even like them. I'm not sure they even like me. How does this thing even work? Like this is a mess. I'm not enjoying this experience. And so I think that's quite similar in a person's relationship with themselves. You know, it's certainly a central part of why people call me. You know, no one calls me because everything's awesome. People call me because there's a mess internally. Like, Jamin, I, I don't know how to be me. Like, I'm, I've got all these internal dilemmas and existential crises and identity problems and I, I don't know who I am or what I'm doing and I thought it was all going to just sort itself out but it hasn't sorted itself out and I'm approaching midlife or maybe even in that season right now. And if I don't sort this out now, uh, it's not going to magically fix itself and things get worse from here, not better. So I need some help. I need, there's some work to do. I think that's typical for, for marriage too. I think, um, you know, the first season you do the best as you can, but I I think real, real intimacy and, and real growth and, and what is beautiful and possible in marriage is is kind of second season marriage. It's it's off the back of where you find yourself when you take a breath and then you have to sort it out as mature adults with some runs on the board. I think that's when you are placed to do this well. So I think that's the question for midlife. I think this is the most valuable, beautiful, important question you could ask your partner right now. Hey, you. You, the one that I've been hanging out with for the last 15 or 20 years, who, who got a couple of kids with and some property and we share finances, would you 
still like to be the one that learns how to love me. Oh, hang on, let's let's remove the word still. Let's just start from scratch. Would you like to be the one that learns how to love me? If it's not about finding the one, it's about making the one, then we are responsible for training others how to treat us. That's our job. And so that requires a bit of a bit of thinking and reflection around how does anyone do that well this training process doesn't come easy but i don't think it's complicated uh, i think change takes a long time coming but it happens in a moment so let's start here in order to train your partner how to love you the way you deserve and desire to be loved when you say don't do that or can you do that you have to be serious be clear or be quiet. That's it. That is your great challenge. So let me give you a couple of examples of how this has played out in our house fairly recently. So you may have heard me talk about my ideal lifestyle, how I've set up my typical week, and that for me, 24 hours a week work spread over seven days is my ideal number. That's my peak productivity. If I cram more in then it costs me the next week i don't get more net productivity Um, now that's that's high energy hours so my ideal day is a combination of high intensity and low intensity creativity and rest uh, running and sleeping i i love to have periods of real focus and clarity and then completely switch off and so i remember when i first discovered this and started playing with it and established it into my world and fine-tuned it and found it really worked well for me it did require me to train the people in my world how to understand that because it was very counterintuitive that you know the, the typical way we greet each other is how are you going busy that's the the question is asked and answered for you already and your response is yeah hell oh geez i'm busy i'm so busy I can hardly scratch myself uh, or busy as a one-armed bricklayer in Baghdad or some version of that and everyone has a laugh and you're a good person and they're a good person. You go about your day. So when people say, hey, how are you going busy, Jamin? And I go, oh, how are you going, Jamin, busy? And I say, no, no, I'm not busy. If I'm busy, something's really broken in my world. Um, or if someone says, what are you doing, Jamin? And I say, stuffing around, or I've just had a nap. It's very a very weird conversation. So it's required me to train the people in my world to understand that. So early on when I'd established that and was really comfortable with that and nailing that, there were some times where it appeared that I was doing nothing and watching TV, eating crinkle cut chips, drinking beer, something of that nature. And... And Catherine made a joke at my expense and made it, it said something around me being unproductive or lazy or and that she was working harder than me or, you know, alluded to the fact that I should be doing something more productive with my time. So I remember hearing that a few times and then feeling uh, unsure of myself. Should I be doing something more productive with my time? Is there something better that I could be doing? Is this okay? Um, maybe I should go and do some work. And then reflecting myself, no, no, this is me at my best, where it matters most, periods of high intensity and low intensity, and I know my number. And so 
there came a moment where Catherine pushed me around that and just joking. But, you know, there's always a bit of seriousness in these jokes. And I said, um, no, don't ever say that to me again. If you see me sitting here on the lounge eating crinkle-cut chips, drinking beer, um, that's that belongs. That is part of how I do me. And you love how I do me because me being me, that has actually worked really well for us. Uh, that's how I'm creative. That's how I'm at my best. And I've understood this process well enough to have discovered this number. So so don't ever make a joke around my productivity and and um, allude to the fact that I'm lazy or, or slack or unproductive. That Don't ever say that again. Now, I'm sure you will have heard yourself use that language pattern at times in your relationship. Don't ever do that again. And yet it happens again. So you have to be serious. You have had to have thought that one through when you say don't ever do that again. Because this is a very central component to training someone else how to love you the way you want to be loved. I felt degraded. I felt disrespected. I felt misunderstood. I felt hurt when those jokes were being made at my expense. They're easy jokes. They're common jokes. It can be written off as lighthearted fun, but it doesn't feel good to me. I don't like that. And it's not what I feel is true or what I feel I deserve. And so it is my job to train Kat to say, no, that's not true. Don't do that to me again. I would feel loved by you if you see me for who I am, if you understand what I'm working on here, if you would take the time to go on a journey with me and see what's actually real here. Even though it's easy to write this off as low quality, this is not actually low quality. This belongs. That was a really important conversation for us to have. And it it changed. Never has that joke been made again in our house. In fact, um, it may have been 12 months later. I don't know time these days. It, it's a mystery to me. But at some later stage in life, uh, Catherine made this poster and framed it and put it in my office um, this quote which is a particularly uh, a particular favorite of mine uh, the master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play his labor and his leisure his mind and his body his information and his recreation his love and his religion he hardly knows which is which he simply pursues his vision of excellence at whatever he does leaving others to decide whether he is working or playing. To him, he is always doing both. James A. Michener. I felt very loved when this poster showed up in my office. And, and the reason it showed up there was because I trained Catherine to understand me like that, and she did. And so our relationship gets better. The space between us remains clean. I don't feel disrespected. I feel seen and understood. That's actually how it's supposed to work. Now, the same, same for Kat. She, um, you know, we work together. She's the concierge. She's uh, extraordinary around design and editing. And she makes me look good. We have a, a great flow of... Um, you know, business systems and we understand how each other do what we do. And so together, it's a beautiful lifestyle because we get to do whatever we do from wherever we are. Um, so, but one day a week, um, Kat works elsewhere in another business 
and it's it's good for her because it's kind of one of her one of her only non Jamin centric uh, roles for the week. So it, it's nice for her to have that, and that's an important thing to her. So she's come home um, and asked me to do cook dinner, and I've got caught up doing something else, and so I haven't done dinner, and so. She's been upset by that and then just cooked dinner herself. And then, or another time I've cooked dinner, but I haven't cleaned up. And so then she's enjoyed dinner, but then had to clean up until she went, do you know what? Um, what I want is on Thursdays when I come home, I do not want to have to go anywhere near the kitchen. I, I want dinner hot, ready when I walk in the door. I want the kitchen cleaned. I want to be able to relax and not have to. It's just one day a week. That's what I'm asking. I am clear that this is what I want. And so... That's hard fought for her to consider that request and then to train her family to go, you want to love me? This is how you will love me. You will think ahead of time. You will plan. You will have the menu. You will have dinner. You will have the kitchen sorted and I will not go in here. This is important to me. So when you consider holding the line, uh, it is it is a foray into both security and integrity, which is no surprise because this is the model. Um, to be clear or be quiet requires you to actually understand your own motivations and intentions because if you're going to put something out there as important and hold a line around when you're telling the people that say they love you to never do something again or to do something again, then that's serious. The pushback's coming, so you're going to have to hold the line. Is that Are you sure that's what you want? So to, to be sure that that's what you want, you all have had to understand yourself. It's no surprise here that your relationship with yourself is the bedrock for how you're going to train anyone else how to treat you. It's actually your job to go first. As, a, as an adult, that is your central responsibility. It's to rid yourself of insecurity. That's your work, your most important work. How are you supposed to train someone else to love you if you don't even know who you are? If you're still living based on assumptions that perhaps there's something wrong with you or you don't matter or you're not as good as someone else and so the best you can hope for is just what you get. You have to settle or survive. And so then you continue to, to train people to take from you, to use and abuse you, to um, use you as a resource to benefit their end and their aims and their goals. So your first and most important work is security. It's to know what you deserve. It's to be very clear that you are delightful and the people in your world are actually very lucky to have you there. It's to show up as the prize. And then to have thought long and hard about what it is that you're going to be clear about. To realize that not everything matters, but some things do. You, if you're going to be picky about everything, well, it's going to create a whole bunch of collateral damage that is not necessary or important. But some things do matter. The integrity of this is when the pushback comes or when you have to enforce a consequence around that or when you have to get upset and go into bat for yourself, the, the piece of logic that enables you to hold that space rather than backing down or feeling guilty or being triggered or getting upset is to go hang on a minute this is actually the best of me speaking to the best of you for the very best reasons so don't pretend this is me being lazy selfish or guilty this is hard fought territory very hard fought territory so i will not be bullied off this turf this stands this is important and this is what i want 
add to that the maturity to go, and by the way, you get to go too. You get to train me how to love you because it doesn't come natural. That's that's not how we start. We don't really know each other. We don't know what they like or what they don't like. We're going to assume they're going to like things the way we like things and we're going to treat them the way we want to be treated, but there'll be differences. There'll be things that are specific and nuanced to them. So uh, the importance back to Peterson's rule around plan to build romance, to work on that. The law of entropy says that systems are moving toward decay. If you don't put energy in, they will move to disintegrate and deteriorate. Your marriage, uh, it won't work unless you make it work. It's not enough to have found someone that is compatible with you and that you've fallen in love with. It is your job to train them to treat you the way that you desire. It's your job to help them love you. And you'll do that out of the overflow of learning what love is for yourself and holding the line with those people. I hope that's useful. Kat and I are running our couples retreat in November off the back of this model, the leverage model, security, clarity, integrity, maturity, authority, which is the skills. It's it's upskilling. It's bringing some skill to the game in this training process. I think it's a, a really beautiful and relevant skill set for any midlife couple to learn. I'm not sure how anyone will survive. I'm, I'm sure um, all that can happen is things deteriorate without these skills. So reach out if you'd like some information around that retreat. It's on the Gold Coast in November. Otherwise, we'll leave it there and I'll talk to you again next week.